Hi, we'll get to our discussion with Chaviv Tagur about the Ukraine crisis in a minute, but we wanted to start with our Masa moment because we thought it was particularly insightful and informative and really set the tone for the discussion that will follow. So please listen in. Hello, my name is Zach Kaplan, and I am a teaching fellow with Masa Israel Teaching Fellows in Batyam. And these are my thoughts on the current conflict in Ukraine. The other Saturday, it was the end of Shabbat. I was on my way into Tel Aviv to go meet up with some friends. I got the first bus I possibly could, and the bus was absolutely packed. Me not having any clue, I had my earphones in, I was listening to music, when all of a sudden the bus erupted into song. And I noticed around me was the Ukrainian population of Batyam bursting out into their national anthem on the way to a protest taking place on Rothschild in Tel Aviv. Uh, Teaching at a school that has a large Russian and Ukrainian population, it's been a fascinating experience Uh, getting to see the way that the students have talked about the conflict, to have a student come up to me when I was in a private lesson asking me, are we going to die? Are we in World War III? And having to explain to a child uh, what's going on right now was a really uh, rare and unique opportunity. And then just from a political science background, having studied political science at the University of Maryland, I think politics aside, it's most important to remember that at the end of the day, we're talking about human lives, whether it be those who have lost their life defending Ukraine, whether it be Russian citizens who are feeling the impact of economic sanctions against Russia and are struggling to do things as basic as get food and basic security resources because the actions of their government. I think we need to remember at the end of the day, we're all human. And I have been very fortunate and have had the very unique opportunity to view this conflict through the lens of teaching a large Russian population in Batyam. Thank you. Welcome to the Israel Conversation by Massah Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Massah Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host... Liel Zahaviasa. How's it going, Liel? It's good. How's it going by you? Good, thank God. And, you know, it's difficult times. It's amazing to me how much what's going on in Ukraine weighs on everybody's head. It's It's rare for an event to be so embedded in everyone's consciousness. And I, and I think there are reasons for that. And so we really wanted to talk to one of our go-to experts, who I was just explaining to also is our listeners react to very strongly. So Chaviv uh, Retegur, we've invited you to share your thoughts about this. Based on something that I heard you talk about on, your, on the Times of Israel podcast, I wanted to get some insight from you. How's it going? Hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, things are going well. We're, you know, readership at the Times of Israel is up. Wars are wonderful for us. Uh, pandemics are great. So, you know, journalism, we're doing great. <laughs> that's, that's the silver lining. <laughs> so uh, we have, you know, every time we meet with Massa Fellows, uh, we get questions. Uh, it, it's really such, uh, and I'm not sure why it is that this is so deeply into everyone's consciousness. And we have a, a Massa moment this week from a fellow who's, you know, who studied political science and everybody's thinking and everyone's processing. And you mentioned last week in the Times of Israel podcast, the daily podcast, that you see changes. I, you have you have your thesis of that international law is this illusion that Israel and Zionists can't pay that much attention to. But you're, you notice that their trends seem to be shifting now because of the war in Ukraine. And we who live in free countries... I think I think your 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 analysis was important. So uh, it's you, Khaviv, So I'm just going to push play. Can you? Wh- what are you <laughs> thinking about when it comes to what this says about what's going on in the world today and the the idea of international law in a world order? So the short answer is I don't know exactly what's happening. These are early days. I think the West, 
the Western countries that are unifying and mobilizing around uh, Ukraine themselves aren't sure how committed they are and where they're going and where this is going to end up. They're feeling their way around it. Poland just tried to send a bunch of... All right. Of- well, this has been a great episode. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No idea. Uh, why do you ask me these questions? What's going on here? Um Poland just tried to send a bunch of old MiG-29s to Ukraine, um, and the Pentagon um, blocked the, blocked it. because they I was don't shocked get by how quickly they dismissed that. Too, right, too escalatory. And Poland says, hey, we're small and we're right next to Putin, and Putin turns out invades right. people. Um, and uh, and the Americans want to wants to play a much more delicate um, and nuanced and slow and gentle game to avoid the kinds of escalations. I think Putin has them convinced that he's... Uh, what Moshe Dayan used to call a wounded tiger. You want to be a wounded mm-hmm. tiger because wounded tigers will do things um, that mm. in in your theory of their mind would be irrational. Um, and that makes them more powerful because that makes you more careful. Um, mm. And um, I, so I, I don't know how much where the West ends up with this. But my, my, my view of this thing called international humanitarian law which is not all international law. It is not the law that allows, you know, packages from Amazon to go mm-hmm. to other countries. And, you know, it's not postal. It's not maritime law. It's not World Trade Organization arbitration mechanisms. I'm a big fan of international law. This branch of international law that wants to limit and place ethical guidelines and rules on war and on the conduct of geopolitics um, I have argued fails. It fails at every turn. It fails because it uses, it's just not law. It's something else. It is a set of ethical norms that the powerful Western democracies like to think they follow and should be followed by everyone. So for example, they want to bring Israel to the International Criminal Court Um on the question of the occupation, on the war in Gaza in 2014, um, the International Criminal Court is much less than an international criminal court because very you know small countries uh, don't belong. For example, Russia, for example, China, for example, India, for example, the United States of America. <laughs> These small, minor countries um, that only rarely engage in war fighting aren't members of the Rome Statute. And so there's this this mechanism that has only and can only ever be applied against the weak and small countries of the world. Well, that you call it what you will, but that's not law. Law that by definition only applies <laughs> structurally, internally, explicitly only applies to countries that can be beaten down is 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 not law. If it doesn't rein in China and it doesn't rein in America and it doesn't rein in India, what right does it have to rein in? Israel. Now, that does not exonerate Israel. That doesn't say mm-hmm. Israel doesn't do profoundly unethical things once in a while. I am of the opinion that Israel has a tremendous moral debt to the Palestinians and a lot to fix. Um, by the way, Naftali Bennett is of the opinion that maybe, ha- apparently, allegedly, reportedly, I, he didn't tell me this, but um, that a lot of the military rule over the Palestinians that is a security regime because there are threats to Israel's civilian population from Palestinian factions, a lot of it is actually just uh, institutional inertia and unnecessary. A great deal of Palestinian suffering under Israeli military rule is unnecessary by Israel's mm. own narrative, and that is a view of a right-wing Israeli prime minister. In other words, I am an extreme fan of the world calling us to task. I'm an extreme fan of me calling us to task on on Israel's um, failures toward uh, the Palestinians. Because that might break the inertia. And toward, no, and a thousand other things. Yes, because we're a country and countries mm-hmm. screw up. If I tell an American, hey, your country committed war crimes, your country made terrible mistakes. It turns out Saddam didn't have weapons of mass destruction. If I inform Americans mm-hmm. of this, I don't think any American is going to fall off their chair, right? So the idea that Israel does mm-hmm. wrong doesn't make me fall off my chair. Of course it does wrong, and we should be fighting and arguing and debating. And you overseas get to have an opinion about it, of course. And Palestinians certainly... As we say in Hebrew, all the more so, get to have an opinion on it, right? Mm-hmm. But to, to talk about it in a language of law that doesn't protect me, but still comes with demands of me, mm-hmm. is not, to, is not mm-hmm. to engage in law. Law that cannot protect has no right to make demands. And international law that 
I put that in quotes, cannot protect. And therefore, it's not law. It's something else. Um, and I think it is how the powerful and privileged and safe talk about their own use of power in order to launder, essentially, and to and to even sacralize a little bit, to make sacred their own you know, use of power. America has never done wrong. Why? Oh, we're the international law and international liberal order and all of this. It's a language, it's a vocabulary that doesn't match reality. And if you are small people navigating this vocabulary, you can't help noticing that it won't protect the Uyghurs. It did nothing in Bosnia. It did nothing in Rwanda. It, today, you know, it's doing very, very little in Ukraine. Um, where does international law where does does political will end and international law begin? The um, genocide in Bosnia ended after four years and hundreds of thousands of dead because Bill Clinton mm -hmm. made a decision to stop it. And after, you know, I don't know what it was, two weeks of bombing Belgrade, it was over. But it took Bill Clinton's mm -hmm. personal decision. There was no international mechanism. It's a law that can't be enforced. It's pushed a, by Bob Dole and others to yeah, yeah. And, and yeah so anyway the reason we should know that this is a Western conceit about Western morality it's how Westerners talk about themselves and that's all it is and that's all we should understand it to be the reason that's an important point is that the Palestinians recently uh, over the last 20 years since the second Intifada sort of crashed the Algerian you know you bomb them until they leave strategy, this is the Palestinian strategy. Mm -hmm. Internationalize the conflict, bring international law to bear. And I'm trying to tell Palestinians, it's not going to work. That, that They will not save you. And, and there are other strategies that you have never pursued. Uh, forcing Israel to pay the moral cost, dismantling the PA, and you know, engaging in mass nonviolence. But nonviolence doesn't mean there's mm -hmm. no violence. It means you're forcing the other side to be violent by claiming your rights and forcing the other side to act out the moral costs of, of, of their policies. Whatever. That's if anyone's familiar with Martin Luther King or Gandhi, those are those are things they did, but it involves mm -hmm. profoundly validating the narrative of the other side and then saying to the other side, you're better than this policy. Come change the policy. I won't let you look away from this policy by forcing you to beat me down. Um, is a, and there's it is a form of mar martyrdom consciousness that that exists, which you you think could be transferable into the Middle East. It's not. There have essentially been yeah. There have essentially been two ways that um, oppression has been overthrown in the 20th century. One was. The FLN, you know, Algerian resistance against French Algeria, the French colonization of Algeria. And that was murder and mutilate and torture and bomb until they leave. For eight years, there was bombings and torture and mutilation and incredible battles. And, um, and then the French left. And when the French left Algeria, that's a million and a half people who had been there for 132 years got up and left back to France. That's one way. And that's the way the Palestinians have essentially adopted as a strategy over decades, many, many decades. And then there's the second way, which is the opposite. It's validate the other side and force the other side to pay the moral cost of their actions. And they have not adopted that because the validating the other side part is hard. Martin Luther King said to white America, not unlike Malcolm X, and in a conscious debate with Malcolm X, he didn't say to white America, you're evil, you're bad, you're irredeemable. You know, I'm going to just stake out my own freedom and screw you. He said to White mm -hmm. America, you signed a check. You signed a mm -hmm. check and I refuse to believe the check returned from the Bank of Liberty marked Ill, in, Ill, uh, insufficient funds. That was in his I Have a Dream speech. He said to White America, mm -hmm. you've done so much horrifying things, but but your story is a moral story and I will force you to to act out that morality, to give me the promise that you have made me. Um, it's who you are. In other words, be a better version of you and I'll be free. That's Gandhi's message to the British working class when he starts his cotton boycott, of uh, his textile boycott of, of, of Britain in India. Although he is invalidating the occupation. Not uh, a little bit different than King. King's internally saying, "I believe in the United States of America. I want to cash that promissory note." Gandhi is saying, 
you British have to get out of here. No, but Gandhi is saying the British working class is with us and I'm making them suffer and I know mm -hmm. they're going to suffer from this boycott, but they understand why they're suffering. And then Gandhi also forced the British military force, the Raj, the regime, to physically beat down people who insisted on voting when they weren't able to vote, shouldn't have gone to vote. You know, to force, he forced them to violate, all in front of the British public. And in the end, mm -hmm. he won over the British public who were asking, what the hell are our soldiers doing there? Why are they doing that? Mm -hmm. The first Intifada played that role in Israeli society. Mm -hmm. uh, we remember the Children of the Stones to this day. What were our 19-year-old boys doing facing nine-year-old boys with stones in their cities? What, what was that? That created a whole new mm -hmm. Israeli left, which the second Intifada, 140 suicide bombings targeting our kids, which was sort of matching the Algerian strategy, then shattered. Mm -hmm. um, so the point is, just not to get away, the point is the Palestinians have strategic options they haven't tried. And the option of international mm -hmm. law, and let's hope the whole world comes to our rescue, is a bad one. That, that's my argument. Now, here comes Putin, invades Ukraine, and suddenly this astounding you know, deck of cards just all falls into place. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I used the simile right, but the point is... Um, all these things start happening. Adidas is, is leaving, um, you know, the Red Hat Linux will no longer work in Russia, right? Um, Apple will mm -hmm. no longer sell iPhones in Russia. On Apple's website, the map of, of Ukraine now includes Crimea. For a while it didn't because Russian law forbade it. Mm. And if you're a company that wants to sell iPhones in Russia, you have to show Crimea as Russia. Now suddenly it's Ukraine again. Apparently now you can't post to TikTok. Yeah, exactly. Um, your Western Europe uh, just sent something like 16,000 missiles to Ukraine. Um, the U.S. Mm -hmm. Congress is finishing a $13.6 billion um, uh, package for, uh, for Ukraine. That's just from the U.S. Germany announced it's doubling its military uh, expenditures, and the Europeans are getting hard to work overnight, instantly, for Germany. suddenly, yeah. on a new indigenous West European uh, tank and fighter, and they have these systems. You know, the French know how to build fighters. The Germans know how to build tanks. Mm -hmm. But they have essentially disarmed, right? They they went from something like 5,000 mm -hmm. tanks 30 years ago in the German army, main battle tanks, able to fight, to 300. Europe, Western Europe has just disarmed. It's, you know, Tolkien in, in The Hobbit, he writes about the Shire, that they have been protected for so long that they've forgotten that they were protected. Someone else has been mm -hmm. protecting Europe all these years. Well, that someone is leaving. That someone is sick and tired. That someone is exhausted from the Middle East, exhausted from Afghanistan, sees China rising, has other things to talk about. And Putin just invaded Ukraine. And so they're now arming and mobilizing. Now, does that mean that international law is back? Biden talks about international law with Ukraine. Um, Schultz of Germany talks about international law in Ukraine. So is international law a thing now suddenly? It hasn't been for many, many years. I mean, international law is one of those things that definitely exists until you're desperately needed, and then it stops existing. It's an umbrella. Mm -hmm. It's what um, Abba Eben, I think, called the UN peacekeeping forces on our borders. They're an umbrella that stops working when it rains, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so... The question now is, does that mean that the liberal world order is reasserting itself? I talked too long. Let me finish with one sentence. It's either yes or no. In other words, either international law is what's now driving this new, strong, robust, energetic resistance to Putin, or it's the simple fact that Russian armies in Belarus and in Ukraine are now on Germany's literal border. Mm -hmm. I want to suggest to you that Germany has rediscovered international law when an aggressive dictator started sending his army maneuvering into countries on Germany's literal border. And then Germany looked around literally that afternoon of the invasion. What was it? The 22nd of February, the 23rd of February. They, they, you know, they look around at the cabinet table and they're thinking, wait, there's Putin. There's his army. We now have two borders with the Russian military maneuvering in the, across that border. And we've got exactly 300 tanks. Um, we fix this now. In other words, this isn't something that waits for 20 years. In other words, Germany has just rediscovered that mm -hmm. it's in danger. I don't think international law has come back. I think 
Western liberal countries have discovered that they can't get away without power, and they need power again. The good news is this thing we have called international law, this patina of language that international law actually is, was 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 a, a vocabulary for the Western powers to talk about them trying to use their power in moral ways. They didn't always do it, but they wanted to believe that that's how you, they are using power. I think that that's, that continues, and I'm, I'm very happy for it. In other words, I'm happy that the Europeans can be woken up by an invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my feelings on international. In other words, my first thought was, whoa, they're, they're coming back. Maybe there is an international law. Maybe it just needed a Putin to wake it up. And now the more mm-hmm. I've thought about it a week later, <laughs> I'm thinking, no, actually, if you take out the simple point that the Russian army is now maneuvering on Germany's border as a wake-up call to Germany, that's not international law. That's just the bad guys are on the border. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very simple self-interested. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not bad news. Self-interest is a much more stable um, source of uh, moral order than um, than I don't know what trying to stay moral all day long, you know, by a sheer act of will. Mm-hmm. Um, but so anyway, there is no international law as a functional thing that you can rely on in building your grand strategy. Uh, but uh, Putin has told has has accidentally become so dangerous to the West that the West has has awakened. And functionally, maybe that's the same thing. And I'm very happy for that awakening. I'm very sad for how it's happening. What do you mean functionally it might be the same thing? We have had a period of peace and order and prosperity throughout the world almost, or expanding period of peace and order and prosperity, essentially Mm -hmm. overseen by American power. Um, The United States Navy sails, or until recently, sailed all of the major... Uh, transit points of world trade. They're the reason world trade is safe. Um, And uh, they have overseen that stability. The military um, that protected Western Europe, first of all, the nuclear umbrella, obviously, throughout the Cold War from Soviet domination, and also the -the on-the-ground physical military, um, spoke English. I mean, it was the American military. For a long time, Mm -hmm. the military that divided North and South Korea was mostly English speaking. Um, the United States has defended the liberal democracies and made them and and American commercialism has has made the West so powerful. Um, and so, saying it's American is is obviously very shallow and sort of, but American power, backed by the American example of democracy and prosperity and capitalism, uh, has driven a world order that has brought unprecedented peace and prosperity. And then somehow 70 years in, the West convinced itself that power is immoral and power is not the reason that they have been peaceful and moral, but in fact, the language of international law that they have been talking to themselves into believing that that's what what they were actually doing was having an international law, right? Um, mm-hmm. That that... that that those international norms, not American power, was creating this this these new expectations and assumptions in, in in the world order, but in fact, just literally the language of international norms. There's a little bit of a problem, um, I think, in uh, in the institution of the law professor. Um, the people who adjudicate international norms are all lawyers. International law are all lawyers, mm-hmm. and they go to university and get law degrees. And at the university, they learn law from law professors. And law professors are bad people to learn law from in some ways Hmm. because they don't actually do law. They think Mm -hmm. about law. They're philosophers of law rather than lawyers. They don't spend time in courtrooms. They don't try and bring the Chinese government (laughs) to negotiate against its interests. They don't have a sense of how hard that is and how extremely useful it is to have 5,000 tanks behind you when you're in that negotiation on legal questions of world trade or whatever. Um, and so law has become this language of international international law, international humanitarian law, international law of basically geopolitics um, is so philosophical and so theoretical that it doesn't even notice that it no longer functionally exists. 
Israel has to obey the laws of war in Gaza, right? Iran mm -hmm. doesn't. <laughs> well, that's an enormous limit on Israeli survival, on Israeli security. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't Iran? Why doesn't Hezbollah? Why aren't there sanctions that are deep and powerful um, against these? Now, there are U.S. sanctions against Iran, obviously, for the nuclear program, and, and Hezbollah is a terror organization in most of the Western world and all this. But, um, but and Hamas as well. Right. But when they come to map out, you know, how to deal with these organizations, um, by and large, that's not what's happening. In other words, they get massive amounts of funding from throughout the Arab world. Um, it took a very long time. It's only recently that Hezbollah's political wing was declared illegal in parts of Europe. Um, you know, massive violations of international law are important for white people. But um, if you're not a white person, for some reason, Israeli Defense Minister Shaul Mufaz, born in Iran, born a Persian Jew, is a white person for the purposes of this conversation. Um, if you're not white enough, then it shouldn't apply to you because I don't know what, because of how the West thinks. Um, so, well, it does. I mean, they are saying again, they are sanctioned. The West does treat Iran as a rogue state, but at the end of the because day, of and, the and, and there are program, actions taken, but only because of the nuclear program. Said there's no cost to pay for yes oppression. No, I don't, There's no cost to pay for for a regime that doesn't allow blowing up a South American uh, embassy. Or I mean, the, the 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 export the exporting of international terror. It's not that it's it's not addressed. It's that similar to Ukraine, you can address it through these means. But ultimately, if you can't enforce it, the fact that Russia is being condemned and sanctioned and punished isn't stopping Putin from blowing up children's hospitals. In the short term, what's happening to Putin is actually extraordinarily effective. Look, Russia is, you know, Russia's economy is roughly the size of Canada's. It's a small economy. Um, and um, mm -hmm. there were a million more deaths than births in Russia last year. Its population is shrinking so fast that the economy can't really grow. Um, it, it's a uh, it, it's a country in profound crisis and therefore very very susceptible. Mm -hmm. By the way, the U.S. not buying Russian oil and gas. Russian oil and gas is what's keeping that economy afloat. They don't make much in Russia anymore. Putin has overseen. Well, I, yeah, it, that, that'll be punishing. America's not their major customer. Yes, but it's a dent. That, It'll hurt. That, that they feel, yeah. And knocking them off the banking but system. But the same is true, Khabib, the same is true of Iran. They're, we believe that their corrupt, evil system, that instead of investing into making life better for their citizens, and many of their citizens believe that you're exporting terror for some weird, you know, fundamentalist religious vision of world hegemony under a great Ayatollah, ultimately self-destructive. That the Soviet Union burned itself out because it was busy trying to hold this idea instead of taking care of its citizens. And and Putin's saying, well, I don't care about the communist idea. I want to go back to the czarist idea. And, and that's going to burn itself out. And Iran's going to burn itself out. Great. North Korea's going to burn itself out. The trick is not all of us glowing in the dark for you know a thousand years because they dropped nukes on us before they burnt out and and so to punish them to keep them in line and and to speed up that unraveling the sanctions are useful what they're not useful at is preventing them from taking these immoral actions putin was going to go into ukraine no matter what we did cuz that's been his obsession for decades and iran is going to build nuclear bombs no matter what we do because that's the Ayatollah's obsession, because he sees the value. When he sees Putin's nuclear umbrella versus Ukraine giving up its nukes, that's all the Ayatollah needs to see. So I, I, I guess I, I'm sort of, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I do think there's a middle ground. In other words, these international conventions that define states as rogue and then punish them are helpful in undermining their status quo of strength slowly. But they don't prevent the evil. And, and, you know, to the 300 kids in that hospital and their families, you know, oh, it's a great comfort to them that the, that the, the, the falling apart of Putin's regime will be a decade earlier than another. It'll be, you know, in 2030 instead of 2040. That's what the sanctions can maybe do. Yeah, I, I so, think that's their logic. I'm not yeah. opposed.
it does stop telling people that there's more. In other words, America needs to stop telling Ukraine, you can give up your nukes, we got you. Because you don't got them. Yeah. Ukraine falls. And the best that America can promise is when you're all shattered and in exile, we will definitely be there to try and help you guerrilla war your way back. Hopefully. Mm -hmm. Unless we need to sign a new energy deal with the Russians at that point. And let's face it, you've already lost Ukraine by then, right? Let's let's acknowledge what the world looks like and stop having this moral discourse right. about yourself that you will not back up when the day comes. Israel is a very powerful state. It's also a very small state. It has the population of Austria or Switzerland. And uh, it can be destroyed. Which is now taken aside in the war. And right, Switzerland, you know, because it's in danger, but it's it can be destroyed, and um, and countries that can be destroyed, stop telling them you'll back them. We started getting American aid, American funding, American weapon systems in the seventies, because we were extremely useful. In nineteen seventy, the Syrians always dreamt of reuniting Greater Syria, as they called it. It was an old Hashemite fantasy, part of the Pan Arabist. Doesn't matter in the 1920s, and the Ottoman Syria, province of Damascus yeah. had some oversight over the Jerusalem and the whatever, Amman, and all this. So they want to recreate greater Syria. And uh, they invade Jordan, and the Israeli Air Force overflies the invasion force because Jordan's our longest border, and Jordan is stable, and Jordan is Western oriented. And even if Jordan once in a while fights a war with us, the rest of the time, Jordan wants peace with us. And so we need Jordan to be peaceful, stable, Western oriented. Um, so we don't want that Syrian invasion. So we overfly that Syrian invasion force, and it turns around. It literally just makes a U-turn and goes back. The Americans came to the Israelis in 1970, and they said, hey, well done. We did not want to have to now face the Syrians, to help out our friend, the Jordanians, uh, while we're mired in Vietnam. And so we became useful. We are stable, we are powerful, we are pro-America, and we are useful to the United States. They don't love us as much as they pretend. Or if they genuinely love us, it won't be worth it on the day we need them. Mm -hmm. They will not come to our aid. Mm -hmm. They'll send guns so that we can die in our in our own defense. And I think that's fine and noble. And I don't even they think... They might even be sad. I don't even... They, they, I'm sure some of them will be sad. <laughs> but but, but mm -hmm. we can't, that is not a strategy. That is not a grand strategy mm -hmm. for the state of Israel, is relying on international norms and laws and ethics and, you know, the liberal order swinging in to, to, to defend us. Uh, let's just say that. Let's say it outright and openly. Ukraine will be overrun. It, will, it might be able to mount this this tremendous resistance. Um, it is easy to put together a guerrilla war. The Russian army turns out to be a lot less competent than we thought <laughs> from Syria. It's just unchallenged in Syria, so you can't really tell if it's competent or not. Um, and in Ukraine, there's these enormous mountains in the west. There are vast forests. Um, it, the Russians have already encircled a lot of the cities. So there's now this war on the cities that's beginning. It's very hard to fight in cities. Um, so it's possible that they can just bleed the Russians for a very long time um, and prevent Russian control. Right. And those shipments of missiles to the Ukrainians are to help them do that. But the Ukrainians are on their own. With that backing, which mm -hmm. is very good and very important, they're still on their own. And they're going to have to mount that guerrilla war, and they're going to have to bleed and suffer, and children will die, and it'll last a long time. Russia is already starting to think about looking for a way out because it's beginning to understand that conquering Ukraine was a silly idea. But the West, mm -hmm. the West swinging into action and rescuing you, don't build on it. You'll fall before they manage it. Well, the international community is a little bit the Wild West, you know, in the old cowboy movies that, that like, we're not out of civilization, but we're not also not really in civilization. The largest organizing groups that we have as humans are nation states and corporations, which aren't designed to help things outside of the nation state or outside. They can be helpful, but ultimately you have to be able to draw faster than the guy, you know, like it, it's... It's the world until you also have to be willing to draw as fast. I think because I think there's some correct the value values in some states versus others are are different, and so certain certain ones are willing to draw without thinking, and certain ones want to sit around and talk about whether or not they should draw their 
their weapons. I think maybe it yeah. depends a lot yeah. on whether what? they're threatened. In other words, ultimately, it's self-interest, right? I mean, is it ever not self-interest? Even America putting the whole world order, you know, and, and sending its navy to sail the world seas, America lives on import-export kinds of commerce. That That's the, mm-hmm. you know, beating heart of its economy. That's the blood of its economy. That pays well, that for that. That was the strategy with China. Navy to, yeah, I mean. We'll go, we'll, we'll get them to be more capitalist because that self-interest leads to more stability and freedom and liberty. And it's not working in China, but but that's a different. Well, China looked at America and said, "Hey, look at these Americans. Look at what this capitalism has given them. It's given them the ability to build a gigantic army. <laughs> Let's do capitalism mm-hmm. and build a gigantic army." Self-interest ultimately. Where the Saudis love us now? Suddenly, suddenly we're you know the mm-hmm. bee's knees. They don't love us. They got bigger enemies. We cannot threaten them. We don't want to. We don't know how. We don't like wars. But we can sure help finance and tech our way out of some of their problems, especially Iran. So suddenly we're allies. It's it's assume self-interest, you will not be disappointed. Assume a moral, ethical regime of international norms with Western countries willing to enforce it, and you will be disappointed every time, including when you're most desperate for it to be true. And on, on that pessimistic note, everybody get everybody get an army. <laughs> can I put? Can I try to put? I usually you you give the optimistic spin at the end, but can I can I take a shot? Go for it. This is I think these are incremental steps towards just like in the Wild West. Eventually, order. There is the the Martin Luther King idea that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, means that we have to crunch these things out step by step. And that ultimately the self-interest of stability for everyone is better for me. I, I, I do think this is, well, I put it into religious language. This is a step towards the healing of the world and, and ultimately a world where, where we can beat our swords into plowshares. I think, I think we're going to have to get there. We, you know, after World War I, we thought, well, this was the one where we learned it. World War II was the one where this is the one where we learned it. And now we, we have to be more mature and say, it's not one, any of these one things. It's step, step. We're going to get there. That's what I think. Well, let me let me ask a question of you guys, um, Mike and Leah. Let me see what you think. I feel like when I go into a synagogue, uh, I believe in that synagogue that uh, history arcs toward justice. As soon as I come out of the synagogue, and my job is to analyze and try and think strategically and try and understand other people's strategic thinking, uh, I no longer think that. I do think there is a human instinct to fairness. It's part of our socialization, mm-hmm. um, you know, we evolved to socialize and that's become an enormous evolutionary advantage. We can work together, everybody doing small parts to build a greater whole, what, you know, synergy is supposed to be before it got overused. But um, as a species, we have built into our neurology an instinct of fairness. And that instinct of fairness can be powerful. In other words, uh, Gandhi used it for, to geopolitical effect. That's not the same as an arc to justice. You can always a little bit pull someone with fairness toward a certain direction, slightly limit how much you know wiggle room they have to be immoral, <clears throat> to be immoral, at least in their vision, in their strategic understanding of their situation. But, but even that's not international law. In other words, I actually think that if the world came to Israel and said 500 children died in Gaza in, in that war, that's that's in 2014, I think it was, th- that's too mm-hmm. much. In other words, you're being very careful, astonishingly careful, and the technology has allowed you to do this and do that. 500 is too much. Children is too much. Even if you say 150 a of, of them are 17-year-old so, yeah. and they're combatants, uh, 300 mm-hmm. actual small children is... is Kids. Is to right and the rocket fire and everything and we're with you and you know we're paying for two thirds or four fifths of Iron Dome or whatever it is, it's too much. Mm-hmm. You can come to and you can say, and then the Israelis will say why international law says it's okay they're shooting at us. And then you say guys I, nobody here's talking about international law because it's only mm-hmm. barely a thing that exists. It's not limiting your enemies. But we've got to and find so a way to manage. It's weird to come to you and ask you to. You were dead kids. It's just morality. Just morality. You, yeah. the Israeli soldier sitting in the room making that decision in front of those monitors, want to know that you're a moral person. A friend of mine is a is a mm-hmm. an officer, an, a lawyer officer, 
in the Israeli army who deals with um, in the international law division um, of the mm-hmm. um, I don't know what it's called in, in English, but essentially the uh, military advocate general's office, I think it's called the, the, the lawyer's office of the army. And his job mm-hmm. is to help brigadier generals making decisions, making targeting decisions, understand whether it's moral. And the, he has he he describes just enormous cooperation, desperate cooperation. A brigadier general really wants mm-hmm. to know not that what he's doing is legal mm-hmm. in some international criminal court sense. Nobody's scared of the international criminal court, but that it's okay, that it's moral, that he that because mm-hmm. kids might die, and he mm-hmm. wants to know that he did the best because he wants to go home at night and he's got three kids at home, and that is real. You can come to Israel with a moral argument. And Israelis, mm-hmm. I think, will listen. Everyone, I, Russian soldiers, I think, will listen sure. now. And they mm-hmm. are trained not mm-hmm. to listen to that. But Some it is, are. I mean, there are sages, but they're a very small part of the population. They're a very small part of the population. And they're not, mm-hmm. they don't run militaries. And if they do run militaries, mm-hmm. most of their soldiers are not. And you can make that mm-hmm. debate. If you get away from this ridiculous thing called international law, which is a promise you, of protection you don't intend to fulfill. And therefore... To the people who actually stand on a border with Hezbollah, who are actually threatened by Iran or by Russia, Ukrainians, can you come to Ukrainians? And you know, there's now Amnesty put out, Amnesty International put out a press release that criticized the Ukrainians for putting Russian POWs uh, on press conferences, <laughs> in which they said, yeah. "We didn't know, we didn't know what we were coming to." Russian army, please, mm-hmm. dear Ukrainians, please treat your POWs well, and the rules, dear yeah. Russians, mm-hmm. don't murder kids. What are you doing? They lied to us. And Amnesty says to take POWs and parade them that way in front of the public is a violation of international law. To which the Ukrainians yeah. are responding, you know, public, We're p- trying privately. to save lives and stop. Can right. we curse on this podcast? It's educators. I don't know. I feel bad to. It's educators. Yeah. <laughs> feel a little bad. Yeah. Screw you. See, that was, I, cl- I cleaned it up. <laughs> that was good. What the yeah. hell? Are you, what? Uh, in my situation right. right now, this is something I am. Vi- what the hell is international law? If this is how is this not moral? How is to this save lives mor- and stop an immoral invasion? Right. Even if it technically you're not. If you have evidence that I tortured them into doing it, the problem is torture. It's no, a there is a rule. Problem. It's a legal. But there is a law. Like if 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 Russia was putting Ukrainians on television saying, you know, oh Ukraine is really Russia, that's what the law is for. Sure. The law is not for the Ukrainian putting the Russian on camera saying, I didn't even know I was going into Ukraine. Sure, but a law that doesn't we distinguish. Is a, My aunt is here. I don't want to shoot these people. Right. But a law that doesn't distinguish right. is a stupid law. Right. Exactly right. A law that right. doesn't distinguish between uh, self-defensive uh, right. shooting of a, of a violent criminal entering your home and a murder in the street is a stupid law. It was law. a poorly constructed law. And, yeah. and if a stupid law that cannot protect you is not a law, it is something it is not a law, and to claim it is a law is to make the concept of law weaker. And and so um, I I know that philosophically it could still technically be a law. And- you I understand what you mean by it's not really a law. I understand what you mean. You're not you, I, I, whether it's technically it isn't the issue. You're making a strong point, but I want to answer your inside the synagogue, outside the synagogue. Yes, mm-hmm. that what Gandhi did only worked because British the British working class had an intuitive sense of fairness yes even the british aristocracy if gandhi had does, done that but they don't show it as often yes <laughs> but if gandhi had done that 400 years earlier it wouldn't have worked where the british working class were watching people who may have been guilty may not have been guilty but you go to the execution just to watch the entrails and you bring your kids to watch the entrails pulled out and the genitals removed and then the head cut off and then the body cut into four and that was fun. And if I had got, you know, if, if a British working class person today met one of the, could go back in time and say, why are you bringing your kids to this? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's instructive. Where was that? What? I'm, that I'm there really sure. are changes. Um, Pinker wrote about this, right? Um, where be- Fewer violent deaths in the 20th century than any previous century. Yeah. And, and it has to do with almost, almost I, I don't want to misrepresent it cartoonishly, but almost the uh, sort of evolutionary pressures on societies. We're becoming gentler. Mm-hmm. It might have something to do with mm-hmm. they're becoming more of us. We, we see around us more people mm-hmm. and, and everything's becoming a lot more intense and claustrophobic. And we are, we are becoming more agreeable to each other because of it and fairness is winning out over slowly slowly over revenge slowly slowly but but measurably and and demonstrably 
Maybe. <laughs> I don't have a good a good Maybe. answer. I do think people want fairness for themselves, and I do think they extend it to others. Um, religions uh, would have stopped that uh, at that time. In other words, the, the religion would have come and said, you don't get to vivisect people in front of you know audiences and have the audiences scream. Right, it was a religious country. It was arguably more religiously run then than it is. Yes, and sometimes religions pre-enlightenment burned alive Jewish villages on the way to a exactly. crusade they shouldn't have been going on. Um, so it's not religion. It's not religion that made that change in the Western world. It's not the it, the Western world used to watch animals eat people for entertainment, and today you have people complaining that American football is too rough and we shouldn't be enjoying, you know, boxing. So what made us gentler? The world. There is a civ- what Pinker says the. Well, that's yeah, yes. So what are you saying? You're saying even fairness isn't trustworthy. It's maybe a, a no. A, I'm saying a very recent fair, uh, cultural habit, a mental habit, and we shouldn't trust in that going forward. The Iranians could be very much like Nazis. By the way, Nazis don't fit yeah. the paradigm that we're all gentler suddenly, right? Um, they no, they do because even Hitler had to pretend that Poland started the war. Because he understood the world he lived in had changed. Alexander didn't have to say, oh, Persia Not, not for moral reasons. Napoleon. Not for moral reasons. To delay the entry not for into moral war reasons. some he of his He understood enemies. that the world had changed and that you can't, even Hitler can't just say, well, Laban's realm, I get to invade Poland. He had, he, he wrote it, but then he, then he dressed up German soldiers in Polish uniforms and had them shoot artillery fire into Germany. So he could say to the world, why did Hitler feel the need to say that to the world? Truthfully, Putin's less interested than, than even Hitler was. Hitler did a whole, I mean, Putin's fake, partially because the Americans just put out all their fake, oh, here's what they're going to do. They gave out the game plan and ruined Putin's smokescreen of morality. You still have to pretend this weird smokescreen of morality. But that's not new. Because even Putin and Hitler realized that the world had changed. That's that not is new. new. I remember learning sure the is. Roman Empire's casus belli um, for mm-hmm. all of its conquests. The Roman Empire never conquered. In Roman law, aggressive wars are illegal. And um, mm-hmm. and so only, only moral war is a defensive war. The only war the gods will smile down on and help you with are defensive wars. And so the Romans always managed to find, um, this was mm-hmm. the job of the priests right, before a war, a defensive reason to conquer all of the vast mm-hmm. conquests of the Roman Empire. It was... Um, the, Judea was their easiest. The entire conquest the of, asked of the to, Mediterranean yeah. and Germania and, and all the way yeah. up to Scotland mm-hmm. was entirely defensive yeah. at every turn uh, under Roman law. Um, it, the excuse was there from the very, very beginning. And... Um, so I don't know. I, I don't. This idea, by the way, of an international legal standard of sort of um, a, a universal morality that we don't have to legislate because it's there and we can just force on you anyway, begins with Augustine, mm-hmm. with with Augustine's conception of natural law. Mm-hmm. And so you have this ancient, mm-hmm. ancient tradition of both having to justify war as defensive from the Romans, of mm-hmm. a, a, you know real profound. Um, ideas of natural law, law that exists even after, even without it being legislated. It's a super, sort of superhuman mm-hmm. or metahuman law brought down from, in his case, mm-hmm. God, but the existence of a morality that is innate in existence itself um, is ancient. And um, as is the ancient belief that was in Rome also, that war is good and being a warrior is good and it makes you better. And that's where people achieve great virtue is in war. And the people we revere as the best leaders are the ones who have the highest body count. Whereas in the 20th century, that's taken a weird turn. At the beginning of the 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt was begging to get into World War I because we need Americans to be able to become virtuous people again. We've become flabby and lazy. And, you know, and he was against isolationism because it would reduce the opportunity to produce American warriors. There, there are, I believe... And it may be, you know, the bunny hop where it's a few steps forward and a couple steps back. And, you know, I, I do believe that civil, there's a pressure within civilization and I can't explain it. I don't have Pinker's language. He, he loses me at a certain point. But I think there is a certain, I don't know if it's a Lamarckian evolution that's cultural. I believe that narrative from the synagogue outside the synagogue, that the world is heading towards, I believe Isaiah 
I mean, that's pretty far back, right? That's the 8th century BC. That was a crazy, he wrote crazy things, A World Without War. I believe that that's where we're eventually headed. There's a difference between what you were saying, between fairness and between a deep sense of of justice, what you were saying, right? And um, like when you were describing the Romans' reasons to go out and, and... Go into war. To me, that that sounds more of an of an, an issue of fairness. It's fair. We're we're doing this, and there's a legitimacy legitimacy to it, mm-hmm. and and there's yes. consequences and understanding of those consequences, and there's sort of like an, a logical argument, sort of speak, to be made. Um, that's and that's fairness. Is, yeah. And what you just said, Mike, makes sort of more sounds like this sense, or the Western world at least, wants a, a deeper sense of of re, of real justice, whatever that means, right? I think that's also can be interpreted in many different ways, but. That's, I think there's a difference between those two. Um, that's something that yeah. I was thinking about. Wait, flesh that out. What do you mean? There's there's this Roman, there's almost a legal kind of fairness. Yeah, and then what, like and then a what's... fairness that, that, that you're reasoning with yourself or with, you know, the... A series of events that you're just that you're deciding to take because okay if I act this way they'll act this way and in some way okay that'll be fair and that's that human um like you were describing this human sense of okay there's a fairness and there is some kind of um way that we can maneuver maneuver or go about um executing a, a whatever we want our desire right whether that's like taking over another country or going to battle or whatever it is where what whereas the, a deep sense of just is it's a completely different thing and I think it's hard to say that everyone in the West, non-Western, that we have a, 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 a common sense of what that actually means. Um, I think mm-hmm. fairness is, is something that most of us are sort of, and, and what you're describing about the, the international uh, law and the international order. Uh, yeah. Order, thank you. And uh, and and that I think that they're on this level of okay, fair like level of fairness, whereas. It seems like what you're describing or what we could be talking about is a more deep sense of justice and where the Western world is, is sort of speak, desiring to go now or desiring, which is why we have um, a more um, gentle and, and uh, I don't know. And yeah, so one needs of, to win? I think it is more gentle. And I think it's also, I, th- I think it's also a hatred, a, a growing hatred of cruelty and suffering. Mm-hmm. Wait, slow down. So, so for example, in 2007, Putin gives a speech in Munich in which he says, um, you're joining Poland to NATO. NATO is expanding eastward. Mm-hmm. NATO is a defensive alliance. I can't help but wonder who it's defending against. Right? And he accuses mm-hmm. NATO explicitly, openly. He accuses NATO of expansion mm-hmm. and expansion and expansion to the point where you're threatening Russia. You're continuing to do this. You won't stop doing this. This mm-hmm. has to stop. Um, and and that's his that's his I would say if there is a real justification in other words the the idea that some pundits have now that he's deranged seems to me very silly he, he people who know him say he's not deranged mm-hmm. sometimes leaders disconnect mm-hmm. a little from the reality around them just because leadership for too long kind of warps your sense of reality but well, they're in a bubble but that's not right deranged, but yeah. it's not deranged he says you guys have been approaching now so Liel you're saying he feels it's completely just that he's pushing back against a slow moving aggression by the West and mm-hmm. the West now wants to choke Russia to death for refusing to agree to be choked to death more slowly, essentially is how mm-hmm. maybe he envisions it. And so he thinks that he is just, and mm-hmm. it's not an irrational view. I, it's, I think completely wrong, but it's not insane. Mm-hmm. It is a rational mm-hmm. sense of history and what's happening if you're looking at it from that side of the of the curtain, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So we all share a sense of fairness, but when you rise one level above fairness to an actual narrative of what justice looks like, suddenly we have very yeah. different ones and we go to war over them. I take that. I I take that uh, completely. I, I I that makes complete sense to me. Um, we still fight war. You know, I think the Chinese regime, I don't think the Chinese regime thinks it's evil. I think it thinks that that's how good societies right. are organized. And American society is falling apart at the seams because it's not organized collectivistically right. and all that. But I would also add to Liel's point that I think probably most Russians agreed with Putin. And I'll bet you a lot of Ukrainians agreed with Putin about that point. But when they watch babies explode, that's when he lost them. And he's losing them in Russia and Ukraine. That there's something about the cruelty that we've become better at. Partially, it's just the intimacy of being able to see it more clearly. But that's not all that it is. Because again, British families brought their kids to watch disembowelments. 
there's something in civilization that we, whatever the ideology is, it's not worth blowing up children over. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it's an intolerance for cruelty that I think is, is growing. And so along with that sense of legal fairness and justification. Why? Why is it growing? I don't know. I didn't. I'm not smart. I'm just observing. <laughs> no, but it's growing. But I, I would suggest there's that a maybe, more. There's a, yeah. I just. I was gonna say that. I think there's a more global understanding that humans are equal. Mm-hmm. Like before, you can bring your child to see something so horrible because the other person who's getting tortured is not equal to you. Mm-hmm. And there's a it's growing understanding. <laughs> yeah, and there's a growing understanding that oh, actually, yeah, that person it so feels you can't sympathize with them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so the other person, the, the person who's on the other end of the world suffering, they they feel just like me and they, they need food just like I need food. Right? And there's a sort of like understanding that they're also just a human like that, me. That woman in the babushka looks like my grandmother in the babushka. Why should I shoot her? Mm-hmm. Pal- That's why I think there is a racial component. Palestinians have been arguing you know, for the it, last two weeks or a week and a half that the world's different response to Ukraine versus to the Palestinians in Gaza, um, not cracking down on Israel the way they're cracking down on Russia is a function of racism. Uh, they're brown and the Ukrainians are it's white. part of it. And I'm suggesting... Yeah, people I don't like killing... White people don't like killing white people. I'm writing a piece now for the Times of Israel that I hope will be convincing that suggests that uh, maybe there's racism. I, I don't know, but you don't need racism because it's a, just a lot harder to help the Palestinians. No, it's, they're giving 16,000 mm-hmm. missiles to Zelensky. If they were going to send 16,000 mm-hmm. missiles to Gaza to resist Israeli invasion, mm-hmm. um, where would those missiles fall? Right, they know that the missiles that Zelensky will get, he will use against invading tanks. They are absolutely convinced that Hamas will use those missiles mm-hmm. against civilians, and so it's a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. And and then the kleptocracy and the corruption and the fact that vast amounts of money given to the Palestinians over the decades have just been lost, just corruption, disappear. and 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 the divide of Palestine and the ideological radicalism. In the end, when you're helping Zelensky, you're helping a Democrat who wants to be. A Democrat. And He's trying to reform the country to be less corrupt. Right. And when you're helping Hamas or Fatah in the West Bank, you're helping these groups that you're every once in a while corrupt, turn yeah. out to be radical and extremist and violent. And and so the Palestinians have made it hard, just just physically difficult to send them billions of dollars and 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 you know military aid, for example, right? And the Ukrainians made it easy. By now, the way, it I'm might be sure. that, it might be that they're white and I'm they're sh- not white. That, I'm you sure know. there's racism also. Yeah, man, oh, for I, sure. But, but, you ha- but in World War II, America didn't round up German and Italian Americans and put them into concentration camps, or Jews even. Well, the Jews weren't the threatening enemy in World War II. Right, but they did. The Japanese, they did. the Germans, and the Italians right, were, right. And, and they, they rounded up round Japanese up Americans Japanese, and put them in right. concentration yeah, camps. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, I, 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 and I think that racism almost certainly has something to do sure. with it. Sure. Also, right. It's I, I, also, I, <clears throat> also, if I'm a, but Ukraine wasn't launching rockets into Russia for months. A Palestinian and Russia had to put a stop moves to, to it. Denmark and becomes a member of the Danish Parliament, and becomes mm-hmm. chair of. I'm imagining. I don't know such a person, but it, and becomes chair of the Defense Committee of the Danish Parliament and convenes a hearing with the Danish military asking why they can't send ten thousand missiles or just a billion dollars to Gaza to help Gaza mm-hmm. resist the Israeli invasion, which they genuinely believe is morally equal to Putin's invasion, mm-hmm. will encounter mm-hmm. responses that have nothing to do with racism. You might have racism exactly. playing a role there, right, but you right, don't right. need it to explain I'm what's sure. happening. Exactly, right. Um, right. You take out the racism and they still have a they problem. They still have yeah. a problem. And the problem is you know, immense and and not easily, not easily overcome. I'm going to suggest that less empathy towards people who are less like me, which is definitely a measurable phenomenon, and research has discovered this for decades, and it's every human alive has it. The more you look like me, the more I empathize with you. The more you live like Mm -hmm. me, the more I empathize with you. If you're religiously like me, I empathize with you. I personally, I personally, there's Mm -hmm. a war in Ethiopia, and I hear that somewhere around the Jewish uh, community in Gondar, someone is killed, bothers me. And I'll read that article and mm-hmm. I'll click through. And it's just a general war in mm-hmm. Ethiopia. I'm just sort of generally sad for the world. I'm not going to go diving in to find out the personal stories of these people. And I like to think of myself as someone who thinks universally and loves all of humanity and all that. But the closer you are to my experience, even if an Ethiopian Jew is a radically different mental world and cultural world than me, but I feel responsible for them and I know they're responsible for me. And 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 so I, I empathize. The empathy travels across these affinity connections. But 
that's not enough, I want to suggest, to explain. No, I'll just stay with that. I agree with you. Affinity travels across these, you know, empathy travels across mm-hmm. these affinities. And um, I, I'm not, but has it expanded? Do we, do we care? Uh, everyone who buys an iPhone, are they worried about the, the Indonesian children in the nickel mines that are getting their nickel for their iPhone? I mean, how much has it expanded? Not enough. It's like we know we know not enough, and it, we, those those Indonesian kids are still doing better. I mean, this is a callous thing to say. The slavery, whatever we call it today, that exists in the world that we turn a blind eye to, is mostly concealed from us. Mm-hmm. Because if we saw it, we'd do something. But it's yeah. not really concealed from now, us. Now that's not an that's not a moral excuse. No, it absolutely it is, is. because act- you can't scroll you've through seen- TikTok seeing the kids working. Show in those, me. We in actively those- conceal it Show from me. ourselves. It is all correct. There. I mean, it's, we are when participants I say it's there, it's there in the self deception. It's not there hard to find. You don't need to research. You don't need to doctorate. I'll I'll say it even more. The American left is angry that Israel kills Gazans. I'm angry that Israel mm-hmm. kills Gazans. But the American left has less right to be angry because there wasn't a year in the two decades that the American army was in Afghanistan in which it didn't kill hundreds of civilians. The UN has numbers where Mm -hmm. every single year, hundreds of civilians, and it never made the news in America, completely ignored. Other Mm -hmm. people killing civilians, horrifying. The American Mm -hmm. army routinely bombing civilians in Afghanistan for 20 years, not even a topic of discussion. I mean, it was in page five, you would find it. Not even a topic of discussion. it wasn't a topic of discussion, but it was there. And so the American left, moralizing and posturing and pompous and self-righteous on Israel, had nothing to say to its own military in Afghanistan for 20 years. We hide from, and I don't think they're strange. I just think they're human. We hide from ourselves. Goodness knows, I think Israelis hide from themselves some of Israel's problems and mistakes. We hide that from ourselves. I, I, I'm not sure how, maybe because empathy is expanding, we have to hide more of our misdeeds from ourselves. Maybe We've we're always talking done in that. circles. That, 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 that deception isn't only top-down, it's also bottom-up. It, it, there are, listen, Frederick Douglass wrote that, that slave masters in cities had to be nicer because they didn't like, on the plantation, I can't see you whipping the skin off the pregnant woman, but in the city, it looks bad if you do that. But, and yet in the antebellum South, people were aware of the cruelty and the suffering, but even there you have to balance it and manage it. And, and today we're still doing it, but we're doing it less. You have to be a kid in a, in a, in a copper mine, wherever. Like, and, and even that, their conditions aren't as bad as a Roman salt mine. It's, it's not that everything is perfect yet. It's that it be, it's better than it used to be. All those flaws are still here. Human nature stays the same. Culture changes. And, I'm, and, I, and I, 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 other than trusting the prophecy of Isaiah... For whatever reason you philosophically believe he articulated those things. I believe he was in touch with something deeper. I do. Because I don't know why else he would have said it. It, it just it sounds crazy to us now. It must have really sounded crazy in the Iron yeah. Age. And so uh, I think there's something in there that we're striving for. And and I think and I I believe we'll get there, but we all have to work and we and we we have to. Listen to people like Khaviv, who who are processing, I, I think, in a world of more freedom and more liberty and more democracy, that it, that and as we take those things as more precious, we have to be thoughtful, reflective citizens that don't just value these things and don't take them for granted, but process what our obligations are. And so, what Khaviv, what you do, at least for me, and I and I. And again, I, I really think our listeners respond to it, is you help us think about our place in the world, whether it's local politics or international, but, and, and, and you're, you're always putting it into that moral context, like what's right and what's wrong in this. And you, you, without losing sight of that, that's the path forward. So I actually, I take your writing and your speaking and your you know, appearances and even your tweets I think is exactly the kind of I, I to me you're a role model of taking this stuff seriously but also taking it morally that weighing the real politique but always putting it into a moral context. So we've gone way way over on time. So not only were you doing us a favor to be on the podcast but you gave us extra extra time. So I I can't thank you enough and uh 
I'll be unpacking this in my head and uh, you know, I look forward and I hope our listeners don't just download. I, I would love to get some more. We have to give them more avenues for feedback because I would love, look again, Masa fellows are talking about this all the time to us. I would love to integrate them into the conversation more Listen, so that I, they can. I have to say, I, I think that this was the most confused conversation you and I have ever had. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know how you felt, Liel, but um, I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that exactly mm-hmm. the world is is currently moving, examining itself, thinking about what all these things mm-hmm. mean. Putin is forcing the West to make decisions and idea about its about its moral compass and about what these terms like international law and its obligations and NATO and defending Ukrainians and what all that even looks like. And uh, mm-hmm. I welcome it. Mm-hmm. We can say a lot of things without saying the final thing or wrapping it all up in a you know pretty little mm-hmm. ribbon. So um, this was a very confused conversation for me, and I, and that feels exactly right. That feels like mm-hmm. where the world yeah. conversation is at. In a world in motion, the best thing thought leaders and educators can do is have confusing conversations of where we're processing together. Right. I think that's a good thing. So yeah. thank you again. Thank, thank you, Liel. Liel, as always, Liel kind of like. I don't know. Liel's a little bit like a Cylon, you know, like in Battlestar. Like you don't see them, and then suddenly Liel like zooms in and goes, "Okay, guys, I'm going to clarify everything you've been talking about for the last 40 minutes." And you're like, "Right, that is right. That is exactly right." That's a Battlestar Galactica reference, just, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just this like, oh, I didn't even see them, and then like, boom! You're, oh, they're 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 negative. Obviously, I meant <laughs> we're pigeonholing ourselves all into. It. <laughs> Yeah, but thank I you. I never yeah. hid. I never hid my Thanks. elderliness. Yeah. Oh, you always do that. It's amazing. Okay. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, I'm not going to turn off the Zoom yet, but I will stop the recording because it's the end of the episode. Bye bye. Masa Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the state of Israel. Masa offers life-transforming, long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MasaIsrael.org for more info.